Well, this is kind of a kind of a bummer ending to the book of First Samuel. Whenever we think about it, it's a dark ending. It's very humiliating. But one of the things you see with the life of Saul is that increasingly at, there was some point in his life where he was being blessed and there was a point in his life where he was now under a curse. And so uh, many of y'all, I don't know if y'all stayed up late this past week and watched the World Series. Uh, raise your hand if you watched the World Series, yes, tired friends. Um, well, um, my family and I did, and especially my son, Scout, he got involved in and watching the World Series, and if, if y'all have even seen him, he's sporting a new Cubs hat today, um, where, after the Cubs won, and I hope that's not a spoiler alert for someone who hasn't seen the World Series yet. Um, but if you know the story of the Cubs, it's one of a curse, right? They haven't, haven't uh, won a World Series in 108 years since 19, 1908, and they haven't been back to the World Series in 71 years. And the story goes that William Sinus and his uh, pet goat, um, Murphy, went to the 1945 fourth game of the World Series. He was there, and he owned a tavern called the Smelly Goat, so he brought this goat, I don't know if it was for commercial purposes, but brought the Smelly Goat with him to the World Series, and a lot of patrons around him started complaining, and eventually they had him kicked out. And so whenever he got kicked out, he pronounced a curse, some say, on the Cubs and said, them Cubs ain't going to win no games no more, or some of that effect. Use some bad grammar there. But nonetheless, it was a curse that, that they say. And then from that, they lost the fourth game of the World Series and lost the series itself and haven't been back since. And so every year when the Cubs get close, and I remember in the 80s and 90s watching the Cubs, they were always the bottom dwellers. And yet they would get, they'd get close, but something would happen. Maybe a fan would reach out and catch the ball, or there would be a bad call, or some, they found a million ways to lose. And increasingly, there was this narrative that they were under a curse. And you see that with the same thing here with Saul. But he really was under a curse. It didn't have to do with a smelly goat. It had to do with God, that he disobeyed God and and he, God prophesied that he would not live and that the kingdom would be torn for him. This is a demoralizing, humiliating defeat, personally, familiarly, and nationally. Think about this. Saul saw the death of his three sons. He saw the death of the guards that were around him, the elite shock troops that, that held him guard all died, um, and that he eventually died in committing suicide. There's a quote by Calvin that says, I think it's up here on the screen. It says, For there is no one so great or mighty that he can avoid the misery that will rise up against him when he resists and strives against God. So why was, why was Saul under a curse? And it said several times in the scriptures, as we've read back, we, we've been in the book of 1 Samuel for several months, that Saul disobeyed the Lord. The Lord on several occasions said, um, one time through Samuel, Samuel said, wait for me. And they were about to fight the Philistines. And they were waiting. And he'd waited for seven days for, for Samuel to show up. Now, I know in our busy society, it's harder. If someone's 15 minutes late, we get antsy. But Samuel was seven days, right? And so eventually, he, he's waiting. And it says that his troops started to leave. And the Philistines are, are mounting. And so Saul panics. And he says, that's it. I'm going to become the priest. And he starts offering a burnt offering, and right then, Samuel walks up. 
And that's whenever the kingdom started to be ripped from him. And then another time, God told him to go and exact his wrath on the Amalekites. And he didn't. He, he killed everything that was detestable, worthless, that wasn't useful. But then he took what was useful. And Samuel called him out on that. And so what I like to do is I, I, when we look at this passage, I, I could teach on a lot. I mean, you could teach on suicide and, the, uh, you know, is it ethical or not? We could teach on um, uh, leadership, and I want to hit a little bit on that. Uh, we could even teach on the, the part I didn't read in First uh, Samuel 31, which is about uh, making vows and, and, and um, supporting friends and making a vow even to your own hurt. And we see that from a, a near a, a village far away, probably 15 miles away, that came and got Saul's body because of a, a time previous that he rescued them. But we're not going to talk about that. I want to talk a little bit about what this passage talks about leadership because it's very pertinent to us as a church body. We're in the midst of a leadership change, right? So the session has just brought on one more elder member. It's a leadership change. And we're in the midst of looking for a pastor. This, the book of 1 Samuel is very pertinent to us of what a, a good leader looks like and then what a not-so-good leader looks like. What a leader, we could say, that is being blessed, and then what a leader that is under a curse looks like. Because I want us to, to look for the qualities of a blessed leader, not a cursed leader. So we're going to look at a little bit of that today. So if you're taking notes, it's, one of my points is, what does this mean for leadership? And another point is, what does this mean for your, your heart, personally? What does this passage mean for your heart? And so... Um, first, let's talk about what leadership is, uh, or at least what this says about leadership. So some lessons that we have from 1 Samuel, and I've put those out, um, and I'll read those out because I know that may be small for y'all in the back. But I, what I went through is just I was just studying the, the life of Saul and the life of David, that really the, the, the book of 1 Samuel is about David, it's about David, and Saul is just another character, just like Samuel is a supporting character. But, but Saul shows, in, in, like in art, in order to see a, a bright color, you need to also see some dark colors. And Saul is a bit of a dark color to highlight who David is. So this book is about, it is really an argument for why David is a legitimate king of Israel. And Saul is just to be a contrast for that, or some people say a foil to show that, that David is good. So I went through and viewed, uh, talked about it, several different things and say, what is Saul, um, whenever I look at the, his view of self and I read through the book of 1 Samuel, what do I see? And so a couple places you see his view of self, he hides in the baggage, he's insecure, and he views himself small. And I, I don't lift that just my thoughts. It's actually pulling out of the text. Um, whenever they're about to anoint Saul, he was hiding among the baggage. And in 1 Samuel 15, um, Samuel is confronting Saul and he says, I know you are little in your own eyes and that you come from a small tribe, but God had big things for you. And it's probably out of that insecure view of who he was that Saul did some of the things he did. He viewed himself as small, and so therefore he viewed his actions as small and that they would be missed by the Almighty God. Now, there's some lessons for us there. Do we view ourselves doing small things and therefore insignificant things? 
Or do we see that God has anointed what you're doing? God is, is, is sovereign. God is watching. And is, what you do is not a small thing. You look at David and his view of self. He runs towards the battle. Whenever he heard the uh, Philistine Goliath saying the things he was saying about God, it enraged him. He had a righteous anger. And he ran towards the battle when everybody was going the opposite way. He was confident in the Lord. He had seen what God had done in his life, that he allowed him to kill lions and bears in the past. And those were small victories that would lead to a greater victory. But they were, he knew that the Lord had delivered him uh, in those, each of those battles. So that's, that's their view of self, their view of the future. Saul's view of the future, he was jealous and he manipulates and kills he was very jealous. Whenever he looked at David, and if you remember, the women were singing and they made a song and they said, Saul had killed his thousands, which is pretty amazing. But then they say, well, David had killed his ten thousands. And so he's comparing himself. He become, it says instantly he became jealous. He started eyeing David at that point. He became very jealous. He manipulates and kills. He was trying to get some information from some of the priests at Nob and ended up killing all the priests there to get his in. He was trying to kill David. If you remember, he manipulated, he actually gave one of his wives to David and said, the bride price is, is two, 200 foreskins of Philistines, hoping he could manipulate the situation so David would go and die in battle, and that would kill him. Instead, it didn't. Uh, David's view of the future, it was gracious. He waits, and he spares life. It's estimated that David probably waited 15 years from when the time that Samuel anointed him until he actually became king. 15 years. Now, I don't know if, if God has, has showed you a little bit of something about who you are and what he's got to do for you, and you haven't yet reached consensus in your life to, to, to reach that thing, and it seems like it's unending. But, but if, you, if we're following our view of the future, if, we, if we're following God, we will wait. Um, several times he spared Saul's life because he knew that one day he would be king. He didn't have to hurry up God. Uh, next, the third thing is how do they handle stress? This is interesting. Again, this is all applicable to you as a person, also to the leaders that, that you elect. But how do they handle stress? Saul, he panics and acts foolishly. Again, I, I cited earlier that whenever Samuel was delayed, he started panicking and just went ahead and said, well, I'm going to become the priest. And, and he acted, and Samuel said, you have acted very foolishly. But if you look at David... Whenever his, wife, his two wives were taken and everybody's, everybody's family was taken by the Amalekites and their village burned and everything, and the people, his own men, were wanting to stone him. It said that David strengthened himself in the Lord. What does that mean? I think it means he got with God, that he, there was some prayer there. It was calling to mind past things. Maybe he quickly journaled something, and that became one of the Psalms. But he strengthened himself in the Lord, not in himself. And he inquired. He, he, he called the priest to come near, and he inquired. He says, should I go pursue the Malachites? And then he acted wisely. And so that's how he handled stress. Uh, when confronted. So this is another issue when it comes to leadership. How does a leader respond when, when someone confronts them? You can tell a lot about a person whenever, how they handle confrontation. Um, Saul, he blames, he lies, and there's a fear of people. You see this in the scriptures as well, is that Samuel, 
consistently was confronting Saul. And Saul was saying, well, it was the people. Or um, he lied. He said, well, I did exactly what the Lord wanted. Um, and it came out a little bit later on that he didn't. He was telling a lie. And so, and then eventually he said, well, you're right, I was fearing people. So, uh, but he tried to save face at that point. When David was confronted, he was confronted by both Abigail as well as Nathan. We see those are two famous confrontations. Nathan is in 2 Samuel, but Abigail confronted him in first, first, the book of 1 Samuel. And so whenever she confronted him, he said, bless the Lord. The Lord has uh, ordained that you should stop me from taking your husband's life. And so he said, I want to bless the Lord. When confronted, he had a humble heart. Uh, what does God's spirit do in Saul's life? It withdrew. And David's, uh, it rushed upon him. The posture toward God of Saul is one of rebellion. The posture toward God for David is one of submission. Or you could say repentance is another word if you wanted the alliteration there. God's ordained Saul's defeat. He said it from the very beginning, or at least whenever he started disobeying God. And God ordained David's victory with the Malachites. Finally, if you look at the last of their life, and I remember hearing Dean say this oftentimes, um, when different members of our church body have died, that that could be your last act of faith here on earth. Will you exercise faith in your death? Will you trust God those last hours, days, minutes, seconds of your life and be faithful? For Saul, he was not. He took his own life. He committed suicide. David died naturally and, and died honorably. Um, so those are some lessons from, the, from, different, from leadership that we can pull that we need to, you know, that's for the pastoral search committee. That's for you as a congregation. That's for, as you look for electing elders and deacons, that's for you if you want to aspire to be a leader, if you're a, a father, a mother, if you want to be a leader in your household. These are qualities that we want to take. Now, it's very, very easy to say, now, I need to go be David and, and do it in the flesh. But God calls us, if you look at how David was the leader he was, when he was the best part of David and when he was acting wisely, it was not in his own self. And we're going to get to that. Um, well, there is a, um, I think many times that there is a cause and effect. So this is really the effect. When you look at their life, you start to see what it looks like. I want to show the next slide here. Um, the, the picture that we have. <clears throat> there is, oh, this is a quote. Okay, so this is, this is a quote that goes along with it. A creative revolting against a creator is revolting against its own source um, of power, like the sin of a flower trying to destroy the flower. So whenever we revolt, if you look at Saul's life, it was one of revolting against God, doing what he wants to do. Whenever he couldn't get God to answer him, he said, he tried different means to find God's will. And whenever he couldn't get that, he said, go find me a fortune teller. And so he did whatever he could to get what he wanted. He was using God almost as a, um, as, as a, a genie, as you could say, a holy, a divine genie. But this next picture, I want to show you this. Now, I don't know if you can see really well with that, but that's a, that should be a leather couch, but it's covered in mold. So imagine someone like Tim Brown uh, saying, come on over to my house and watch, you know, I'm going to pick on you, Tim, saying, come on, let's watch the Panthers today. And, and we go to his house, and he has this sitting right there. 
you would not want to sit there. You'd probably say, Tim, you got a problem. One of many, I know, but Tim, this is specifically a problem here. Now, you might say you got a mold problem. Would you, would you agree with that, that, that he has a mold problem? Okay. You might even look deeper and say you've got a water problem, right? Because if you know anything about mold, it's that mold, there's, there's three things that mold needs to grow. It needs an organic host, which is Tim's leather couch, uh, which, by the way, just full disclosure, this is not Tim's couch. Um, but, but we'll just say for the story it is. So Tim's leather couch that's, it needs an organic host. You need spores, so something to actually land on there, a mold spore, and you need moisture. So maybe he's not running the air conditioner, it becomes very sweaty in there, right? Um, and so because of that, mold can grow. Well, when it, mold is really the effect of a, the cause of high moisture. Likewise, bad leadership is the effect of a bad heart. Okay, let me say that again. Bad leadership is the effect of a bad heart. So let's look at the cause of bad leadership. Really gets into what the heart is all about. Now, it's interesting when, when Martin Luther uh, posted the 95, uh, his remonstrative or his thesis there on the door at Wittenberg, he said this. He said, number one was, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent in Matthew 4, 17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And so Luther said that your life should be one of repentance. Now, oftentimes we see repentance as just whenever I do something bad, I'll repent of it. But it's kind of this big event. But really, Luther's saying that your whole life should be that of repentance. And the difference between Saul and David is their heart. That David had a heart that was after God. David had a heart that was one that was repentant. Now, if you look at different cultures, different cultures view the heart differently. I know that sounds like a profound statement, but it's really not. But um, if you look at the Greeks, they viewed the mind as an enemy to the passion. So they believed that the mind was the source of your soul and that the enemy to it was just your passion because they believed that the material was an enemy to the spiritual. And so that's how they viewed life. The modern person... Today in America, we view um, the emotions as the source of what life is. And the enemy to that is a repressive society. And so, therefore, we just need to make sure that the, the restraints in society need to be lifted so we could really live out our emotions and be actualized. But neither one of those are true. What the Christian understanding of emotions are, is really or the heart is that the heart is, is the seat of everything. It's a metaphor that the scriptures really talk about. It's a metaphor. It's the hub of all life. It's where your deepest commitments are. It's what you trust in, what you love and hope, what you treasure, what captures your imagination. That's your heart. And the enemy to that is anything other than God that captures your trust, your hope, or your love. Now, um, whatever you cherish in your heart controls everything which is why we want to be wise what touches our heart. Now, even in 1 Samuel, um, when, when Saul, uh, I'm sorry, Samuel was trying to find the next leader he was anoint, uh, to anoint, and he goes to the house of Jesse, and he sees all of Jesse's sons. 
And he said, surely, goes to the oldest and says, surely this is the one. And God says, no, that's not the one. He kind of goes down the line. And then he talks to Jesse. He said, do you have any more sons? And Jesse's like, oh, yeah, I've got one. He's out back tending the sheep. He said, well, bring him here. But in the midst of that, God told him, do not look at the outward appearance, but look at the heart. Because God sees that the, the heart of us is where, what we trust in, what we hope in, what we cherish. That's why Jesus said in, in Mark 3, 5, he, he was talking to the Pharisees. He was mad at them because they had hard hearts. Jesus was concerned with the heart. We, we see in 1 Samuel 16, like I just quoted, that God ignores the outside but looks at the heart. Even the prophet, Jeremiah 31, verse 33 He's not, Jeremiah talks about, says that he's not worried as much about this outward compliance as much as he's written, worried about the law being written on the heart. Okay? So you can't merely change by just thinking or your will. Really, you have to repent. Um, Tim Keller said it this way, this way, that we change when we change what we worship. You change when you change what you worship. And so I want to get into... What was the next slide, Melanie, that we have here? Okay, so Martin Luther with his good haircut there. All right, so let's go to the next slide. Okay, so I want to get to a little bit of application here. So, again, I think I've told, told you this before that the, the uh, Puritans would spend 45 minutes on uh, exposition of the word, and they'd spend 45 minutes on application. Now, we don't have that much time. But I want to get to application because I really want to say, what is this, this topic of looking at the life of Saul and the life of David, the wrap-up of this book? What can we learn from it? What can be applicable to you? And so it really gets down to, I think, what it, it, we could say, well, we just, we're looking for all these outward things of what a leader is. And so the pastoral search team, you ought to look at you know, this checklist of things he can do. And that's, that, that can be good. But really, the pastoral search team, if they do their job, they need to supernaturally, with the power of the Spirit, look at the heart of the leader. And that whenever you're thinking through who's the next elder or deacon or um, whoever you choose, you need to think through what is their heart. God, help, help show me their heart. And this is also an application for you. What's in your own heart? Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything flows from it. And so I want to get into a little bit of application here. If you turn there to uh, uh, Proverbs 4, <clears throat> I want us to, to look there. And this is a really good passage here. I want to break this down a little bit. Now, I know whenever we talk about the heart, and we're in the South, you kind of think, you know, heart, well, the expression, oh, bless their heart. That's kind of how we do it, you know, and that just really means, someone said, when you say bless your heart, that's just a different kind of stupid, a special kind of stupid. Um, I want you to think much bigger than that, that when we talk about the heart, it is the seat of all emotions. It's the seat of everything you trust in. It's the seat of what you worship. So let's get down to what this means. Now, this passage, uh, uh, Proverbs 4, 23 through 27, is really a good grid for you to think through, a good evaluation for you to understand when you ask the question, where's my heart? It's a dipstick. I don't know who still changes their oil these days. Yeah. So it's the dipstick dipping down and say, what is the level of uh, what's going on with my heart? Or so, some of y'all are smiling. Is it the way I say oil? Yeah. Um, yeah. In Georgia, we say oil. 
So I, I know North Carolina, it's a little bit different depending on if you're from western or, north, or eastern North Carolina. But it's oil in South Georgia. So uh, the, the dipstick is to check the oil of your heart, right? So let's look at a little bit of application here. First is, you read this, it says, Keep your heart with all vigilance. From it flows the wellspring of life. Verse 24, put away your crooked speech and put devious talk far, far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet and then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. So let's, let's look at that. I broke this down into three areas. And so the first is the way, first way to guard your heart and really, again, we're doing this on the auspice of David. I believe David, the thesis is David guarded his heart more times than not. That's when he, it says in the scriptures, he was a man after God's own heart. We see that in the Psalms, which is really David's journal entry. That he's, he's fighting to guard his heart from despair. He's fighting from guarding his heart of wanting to go ahead and manipulate and take the kingdom in his own hand and kill Saul. He's fighting temptation, all those things. He's He's fighting to believe God at his word. And so how did he guard his heart? First, with what you say, to avoid perverse, corrupt, and crooked speech. In other words, words matter to God. Um, Matthew 12, 36, Jesus warns, he says that every careless word you say, you will be judged for it one day when you die. Now think about that just for a second. Every word you say it's almost that God, has de- he has DVR'd it, right? He's recorded it, and he's going to play it back. Remember, if you don't really believe this and this is new to you, then you've probably been viewing your speech as a small thing. Just like Saul viewed himself as a small man. You had a low view of your words. But death and life, it says in Proverbs, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Jesus said, every careless word will be judged. James 3 talks about taming the tongue. Um, That the tongue can create, it compares it to a a bit in a horse or a rudder for a boat or a small match to light a forest fire. It's a small thing, but it can create great things for good or for bad. Um, Our tongue can be a blessing or it can be a curse. So what you say is going to affect your hearers and it's going to affect your own heart. That's why God speaks against gossip. That's why God speaks against cruel speech. Lying. Those things because whenever, the more you say it, the more you start to believe it. So you've got to watch what you say if you're going to guard your heart. So you're, in other words, if you don't watch what you say, your heart will become increasingly hard and you'll become more and more like Saul. Okay, next a way to guard your heart is to guard what you see. Really, this is what you take in. This is bringing outside data in. Jesus again says in Matthew five twenty nine, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Now he didn't mean literally do an operation on you, your own self, but he's saying that if there's anything that's causing you to sin, take it out. I, you know, a month ago the Lord convicted me that I was wasting a lot of time on Facebook, just in and out of the day. And so I, I, I deleted it off my, my phone. And so I, I was wasting lots of time. I was being careless with my time. 
Um, and I was, I was spending time, maybe good things. Yeah, definitely some good things, but not the best thing. And it was becoming stumbling for me, a stumbling block. Also, I just, I just recently called up, started watching a particular show on Netflix and binge watched to catch up with the rest of the season. And I just calculated that I probably spent 60 hours over the last several months watching this show. And I say that to my own shame, 60 hours. And I thought through a journal, what could I have done with those 60 hours? You know, I, I wrote that I could, have, I could have gone on a weekend retreat uh, just with God. Um, could have taken my more sleep. I could have been time with Stacy and the kids. Getting more time for planning with, with what I have going on with, with seminary and, and building a house. Preparing for this sermon. Um, it is it's to my shame that I, it's what I've been seeing, data I've been bringing in and been wasting my time. TV, music, even your goals, what you put in front of you. I've known people that they wanted to uh, get to a certain goal, so they put a picture of a particular car on their desk, and they worked hard for that. And that may be good, but it could be bad, too, because what is it that you're setting before you that you're working to? What is, what is beautiful to you? Uh, you know, uh, for instance, me spending 60 hours watching the show may be a good thing, but it's not the best thing. I could have been spending time, and I don't want to sound like spiritual Sam, but that I could have been time in the Word, and that my understanding of what's beautiful to me, what is enjoyable to me, would be changing. My palate would be changing. You know, they say that whenever you start changing your diet and you stop eating high sugar, high salty foods, and you start eating things that are low in those things, that your palate starts to change. And you start enjoying those. But it takes a while. What it was happening to your palate? What is it that you see? The third way to guard your heart is what you do. Verse 26 and 27. It says, ponder, which consider. It means aiming before you're acting. Instead of just shooting. Uh, Hebrews 12, 13 talks about a way to put temptation away from you is to make straight paths for your feet so you don't stumble. Another is to get great counsel. Uh, I think Proverbs 18 says, abundance of counselors, there is victory. So what is it that you do? Um, do you ponder what you do? I'll be uh, really, really frank here that I think some people have left the church at, for unwise reasons. They've left out of not considering their path. They, they, they didn't take counsel or they took counsel that only reinforced their emotions. And I was reading uh, this week on a, um, there's this um, belief he's from Holland. He's in his 30s now, but he, this guy is a genius in marketing. He started an ad agency at age 12. And he wrote, I think it's called Biology, or B-U-Y, Biology. And so he talks about why people buy. And 90% of people's decisions about purchasing things happen in the subconscious, not in the conscious. And you kind of know that. If you're in sales, you know that people tend to make emotional decisions. Yeah, let's just, let's go do it. You know, they've already made the decision because they want to. But it's happening in the subconscious, it's what they're putting in front of them. But did they get really wise counsel? One of the things you can do, I think we can do, is memorize Scripture. 
Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure by keeping according to thy word, hiding his word in your heart? Um, another good passage, Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. Look carefully how you walk then, making the most of the time. They're not, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So whenever we consider what we're doing, are we really walking as wise people? Making the most of our time. You know, I'll tell you, one of the people, and y'all, this is no surprise to you, one of the people that I think makes the best use of the time of anybody I've ever met is, is probably Daryl. And I remember one time we were, we were running at the YMCA on a treadmill side by side, and I was running, and he had a Greek book with him. Running, looking at the Greek, because he was in that, in, in, uh, that particular course in seminary. Sweat's coming off, getting in the book. I don't know if he laminated it, but he's... I remember thinking, I, I mean, running, running's hard enough right now for me, but then, you know, looking at the Greek and studying, he may even had a baby in an arm, too, while he was running. And I think he was whipping up some eggs, too. I, I, he was, it was amazing. Um, and I don't mean to, to lift up Daryl, but I think he does a great job. He epitomizes of making the most of the time. But also this, this passage, Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, doesn't also mean that you just do a lot. If you make the most of your time, you may do less. You may substitute what you do with other things, not just necessarily. So it will make lazy people work more. It will make overachievers probably work less. For the most of us, it will make us transfer what we're doing. I know some people, maybe that air is striking deep right now. The last question is, what do you worship the most? What do you spend time thinking what is beautiful what do you daydream about? What is it you do? Idle time is, is really what you tend to daydream about. Well, uh, what I wanted to, the point I wanted to make was that I think that David did this. He guarded his heart. The reason he was a righteous king, for the most part, and, and we get into 2 Samuel, we, see even, we, we even see in 1 Samuel David's sin. He had multiple wives. He went and made an alliance with a foreign king, and he shouldn't have done that. It put him in awkward situations. There were sins that David had. That's not the point. The point is, what did David do with that? When, he, when it came to his attention, when the Spirit brought that to him, whenever someone confronted him, he repented. What did Saul do? He bristled against it. God calls us to be more and more like David and less and less like Saul. And you'll never be like David or what Christ calls you to be until you first confess that you, you act like Saul most of the time. But one of the things you can put before you beautiful is, that's beautiful is if you even look in one of the Psalms, famous Psalms that David wrote in his journal when he was writing about life and being chased, Psalm 22, which Christ quoted when he was on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in verse 14, he says, I'm poured out like water, and my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, and is melted within my breast. That's, exact, that's Christ, what he did for us on the cross. He took the pain. He lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died. He was poured out. Pain was inflicted upon him instead of us. He took our debt. The more that we think about that, the more we meditate on that, the more beautiful it will be. Have you ever wondered why, when, why, we ha- why the communion is the way it is? 
We could just talk about the Lord's death. But once a month, we take communion. And if, you, if you, it's interesting, it engages most every one of your senses. Think about this, that you hear the word spoken, that the body and the blood is represented by the bread and the wine. So you hear it. You see it. So you, you, you actually look at the bread and the, and the wine in front of you. you. You pick it up and you touch it. Not only that, you, you crush the bread in your mouth. It reminds you that it pleased the Lord to crush Christ. And as you drink the wine or the, the, the juice, that he was poured out like a drink offering. You're touching that. It's engaging your senses. It's because the Lord wanted to engage as much senses as possible for you to remember. For you to be reminded to engage your heart. So the next time we take communion, the next time you spend time with him, ask the Lord, what is it you need me to hear about guarding my heart? Because I don't want to harden my heart. I want to have a heart after you, Lord. Let me pray for us as we move towards responding to this word. God, thank you for the opportunity to uh, talk about your son, uh, your servant, David. And how he was a type of you. He pointed to you, Jesus. And he was definitely, definitely flawed and sinned greatly. Maybe on the scale of sin, maybe more so than Saul, but he had a soft heart. And you had favor for him because his heart was after you. And when it wasn't, it wasn't long before it was put back in order. God, may we be like David. May we be like your son. Reveal to us the hardness, the rebellion, the rebelliousness in our heart so that we may return to you. In your name, amen.